0: What's up, everyone? Welcome back to James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse Motif, and this is episode three. I'm going to do a review of the Baldwin documentary released in 2016 by Raul Peck entitled "I Am Not Your Negro." I want to address a couple of things before I get to that review, though. For those of you that have listened to the first couple episodes. Like I said in the second episode, I'm very grateful and very thankful for each and every person that has listened and has either left a comment or a rating, um, however you're listening to it. Um, It's been over a month since my last recording, and I'm actually recording this in a completely different state. I mentioned last month that my family was going to be moving Uh, to the Kansas City area, and I did not at all expect to take over a month before publishing another episode. Uh, The reason for the delay, um, after we moved, someone very important and very close to me uh, became very sick, and the prognosis, both short-term and long-term, is not good. Um, and this person, it's my grandfather. I'm very thankful that I'm still able to say that I have a grandfather in my life. He's 91 years old and he means the absolute world to me. Um, he's the father figure I never had growing up and he is my hero and He means the world to me. So these last couple weeks, I spent up with my family in Wisconsin and spent time with him and got to have a lot of conversations and got to share a lot of personal feelings that far too many of us don't get to share with people that mean the world to us and people we love. And sharing those feelings in the year 2020 when we're going through COVID, it's it's a surreal experience. But I'm very blessed that I had that time with my grandfather. And I'm at ease knowing that I was able to share with him just how important he has been in my life and just how much I have always looked up to and admired him because that's not one. That's not easy for men to share that with anybody Two, Like I said, my grandfather's 91 years old. People from that generation, just they don't share feelings. It's not what they do. So for him to be able to hear what I had to say and acknowledge it and show love and appreciation back, it meant the world to me, and I'm sharing all this because I, I it will tie in to talking about the Baldwin documentary. Um, but I just want to keep you guys updated uh, because the reaction I've gotten from the first two episodes of doing this has completely blown me away. The feedback I received. I can't thank people enough for the kind words the messages they sent me um telling me that they wish they had a platform or they wish they had moxie enough to share their feelings even though it might not be the most popular feelings to share Um, so i really do appreciate each and every listener i appreciate you growing with me as I am now transitioning to new software so hopefully over the next couple episodes things will sound better for you guys maybe even sound a little more professional and hopefully we're going to get some interviews up real soon and I'm really excited about that some of the people I'm going to talk with I think are going to have great stories not only about Baldwin but about how Baldwin has affected them and influenced them in their lives. And I really hope for those of you that might not be, for those of you that might be casual Baldwin fans, I hope that the stories that you'll hear over the next few weeks and months will really start to give you an idea of his influence, his importance, his gravitas, and how he really was a visionary and a revolutionary and things that he said in the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties, we really need to take it seriously. We really need to take it to heart and we really need to start acting on the words that he said, because if we act on those words as we're slowly starting to see real change might be able to come to this country. So I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with a review of I Am Not Your Negro. I Am Not Your Negro came out at an absolutely perfect time for me. I was in graduate school and i had already decided that james baldwin would in some way be the topic i wanted my master's thesis to cover so by the time the film came out i had already immersed myself in everything baldwin i had read pretty much everything he had ever written i was reading what other people had written about him I watched the documentary, Price of the Ticket, which I will cover next week. And I had just any documentary or any video clip that was on YouTube regarding Baldwin. It was safe to say that I watched it. Now, the film itself is a representation of black and white relationships in this country. It was based on the book that Baldwin had started but never finished, titled Remember This House, in which he was going to cover the lives of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. The premise of the book, at least in the start, was for Baldwin to go to the children of those men and ask them if the loss of their fathers during the Civil Rights Movement had been worth the gains that black folks received after the civil rights movement. And I can't even imagine what their answers would have been. I can't imagine today if we would look at the families of those that have had family members murdered by the police in this country. I'm thinking of George Floyd's daughter or even his son, for that matter, um, the families of Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, if what we're now seeing in this country with, again, the Black Lives Matter movement really taking central control of pushing social progress forward, if there are significant gains made from this movement, if the loss of those family members would be worth it for those families. And that's, I think, one thing we have to keep in mind, not only when we look back at the civil rights movement, but also the Black Lives Matter movement. Those movements, they weren't about gains. Sure, you had the Voting Rights Act, you had the Civil Rights Act. You're now looking at police reform becoming a central tenant in this country that looks like things could potentially change but it's not about those gains it's about the sacrifices that were made the people that were lost the lives that were changed forever and the families of those lives that were changed forever and their response because it's the people that have to pick up the broken pieces of those family members that have been lost, that continue to push on, that were not only central to the civil rights movement, but they're central to what's happening in America right now. So Baldwin begins the film, Baldwin's words, begin the film early on, um, talking about peculiar language in this country it's it's coded language. It's language that if you study history, if you study race relations, you, you know, this language, you, you hear these words in the media. You probably hear your friends or your family members say some of these words. If you bring up Black Lives Matter, you might hear words like thug or gangsta or terrorist. Or you might hear family members talk about black people being lazy or violent. All of those words stem from one thing they stem from fear. And it's because of that fear that people become ignorant towards other people. It's because of that fear that people attach stereotypes to what they perceive as the other. People that don't look like them, don't talk like them, don't have the same beliefs as them. And it still amazes me that we're so easy to divide ourselves. And we're so willing to put one another in boxes with labels on them. Baldwin had a great quote about that. I want to play that for you quick and then come back and continue this discussion.
1: It is not a romantic matter. It is the unutterable truth. All men are brothers. That's the bottom line. If you can't take it from there, you can't take it at all.
0: And as he usually was, Baldwin was right. We are all brothers, and that's just a fact. It's an undeniable fact that we are all the same. We may have different features that distinguish us. We have may have different ideologies. We may believe in different divine entities, but when it comes down to it, we're all brothers we're all sisters we're all in this together and it's the only way that real change can happen not only in america but in any country around the world and it's speaking the truth like that that baldwin was an absolute master at He called it serving as a witness. He was bearing witness to his reality and what he saw and how the world affected him and how it affected those that he loved and those that he identified with. And that same thing is happening today. It's been happening. But the response from white folks hasn't been there for whatever reason. It just hasn't been there until very recently. And I hope now that there has been a response from white folks, I hope it continues. I sincerely do. Because if it's somehow, for instance, if Joe Biden gets elected and everybody thinks that Joe Biden is going to make a world of difference compared to Donald Trump. So then people just decide to rest on their laurels. If you do that, this country is going to stay the exact same nothing is going to change it doesn't matter who the president is we need collectively to keep pushing keep moving the needle forward keep demanding better from those that hold power in this country demand to be heard let your voices be known November 3rd at the ballot box. And then once that's done, whoever wins, keep pushing. Never stop pushing, because as soon as we stop pushing, that's when those in power will stop responding. But I don't want to get too far away from Baldwin here. Like I said, he served as a witness speaking his truth. He also talked about there being a very thin line between being a witness and being an actor. It's very easy, especially somebody in Baldwin's circumstance, being an outsider, having lived in France for so long, to serve as that witness, but then when he comes back to America and gets involved, then he all of a sudden becomes an actor. And we see that so often into today's society as well. We have so many people that are willing to go and protest, and that's wonderful, and that's needed, and that's central to the movement. But we also need those that, for whatever reason, aren't able to participate. They need to serve as a witness. Black folks need to continue to tell their story, speak their reality so white folks hear it. And white folks, you need to listen And you need to take what the black folks are saying and not be dismissive about it. Take it as what it is, it's their reality. You live in your reality, but the violence and the fear and the anger and the pain that is so prevalent in black communities, that's 100% real. And it's something that can be changed. So have the empathy, have the compassion to be an active listener, and then be a witness to those that might not have access to black voices or those that just refuse to listen to black voices, but maybe if it comes from a white voice, they'll listen so you can share those stories. That's so important. Not having that empathy, not having that compassion, the moral apathy Baldwin talked about in this country is so dynamic. That's such a divider, more than just race or religion. It's people not caring. It's people being comfortable with their position in life. So you're 30 years old, you're married, you have a child, another one's on the way, you have a good job, your wife has a good job, you you just bought your first house, you're very comfortable, and you see these protests on TV, and maybe you agree with it, but you're not willing to do anything to help it. And like I said, it's fine if you can't protest, not everybody has the means to be able to do that, but this is where you need to serve as an ally. As a witness for what you're seeing and share that with others to keep that movement going forward something in the documentary I thought was funny in in an ironic way there comes a point where you hear all of these public figures Give a two word soliloquy. I'm sorry. It's such an easy phrase for anybody to say, but have no real meaning behind it. I'm sorry. Police officers killed George Floyd. Oh, I'm sorry. Redlining in cities makes it almost impossible for black families to purchase a house. Oh, I'm sorry. Black children don't have the same access to a high quality education as white children. I'm sorry. Presidents lie. Presidents cheat on their wives. Presidents don't disclose their tax returns. Oh, I'm sorry. We have to stop letting I'm sorry be the end of a situation. The I'm sorry needs to be the first step. We saw that recently with Drew Brees, the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, came out and said some things that he was very passionate about, but said he didn't understand how people could ever disrespect the flag by kneeling. And immediately he saw the backlash on social media, came out the next day, I'm sorry. And then he responded with two lengthy social media posts. And that's a great first step. And he needed to acknowledge that he was sorry because he was wrong. It's okay to tell somebody their thinking is wrong. They can have their opinion. Their opinion can be wrong. But now it's incumbent on Breeze to have the actions after the apology. And it's on the general public. If you're a fan of the Saints, if you're a fan of Breeze, Keep the pressure on him. Make sure he doesn't let this apology be the end. Demand action. He is somebody with a platform that can actually make long-lasting, sustainable change. Even if it's for his city, that would still go a long way in helping change lives in this country. Baldwin said that we are trapped in this country between what we would like to be and what we actually are. Think about that for a second. We always like to brag that America is the greatest country in the world and we are this and we are that. But in reality, we are very few things that we brag about. We aren't the most free country in the world we aren't the most educated country in the world we're the richest country in the world we're the country in the world that spends the most on its military we're the country in the world that jails more people than any other country but none of those are anything that i brag about to anyone it's incumbent upon white people, and this is going to come up episode after episode after episode. It is incumbent on white people to make the change in this country. Black folks have been telling us for 400 years what's wrong with this country. As Baldwin says in the film, black people know white folks. White folks don't know black folks because we've never had to look at them. But they've spent all of their history in this country looking at us. And they know what we're really like. They also know what we're capable of, both good and bad. But we know nothing of black folks. Or very few of us know very little about black folks. Baldwin also talked about that the history, history is the present we carry our history with us. We are our history. And I mentioned this in the previous episode, being a student of history, being a history teacher, loving the stories that you learn from history. It's not just about dates and names. It's about the individual stories that shaped this country into what it is today. And it's about the individual stories that are taking place right now that will shape our future for the next 100 years. And the last thought I want to get to before I get out of here for this week is Baldwin talks about Black folks being called the N-word. And I'm not going to say the word because I have too many people that are really important in my life, that if I said the word even in this educational context, they would be disappointed, they would be mad, and they'd come kick my butt. But we all know the N-word. It's arguably the most divisive word in our language. So Baldwin asked why it was necessary for white folks to have the n-word in the first place why have that label towards black people because it was our invention it was white people's invention and it was used for a very specific reason and that reason was to subjugate and demean and keep black folks on a lower level in society than white folks it was to keep them at a literally servant level to white folks. So the purpose of that was to make sure they understood, black folks understood that they were not equal to white folks, they could never be equal to white folks. And we know that that idea is absolutely ridiculous. And so I want to leave you with this, I think, for this week. I spoke earlier about having the opportunity to spend time with my grandfather and love. And the love that we have for one another. And that's the kind of love that we need between all of us going forward. We need that deep, rich love. That transcends anything. It transcends boundaries. It transcends skin color, sexual preference, religion. The love that is transcendent of everything. We need that. That's the love we need to carry this movement forward. To make sure this country turns out the way that so many of us hope it can turn out. So the last thing I'm going to do is play a clip from the documentary for you guys. Uh, It's a very famous clip. I'm sure many of you have heard it or seen it. It's when Baldwin was on the Dick Cavett show. I believe it was 1965. And he has a debate with a college professor. And it's, it's simply Baldwin at his best. And it seemed Baldwin was always at his best, but this maybe was his peak. So I will talk to you next week. I thank you again for tuning in. Uh, Please rate and review the show wherever you're hearing this, whether it's on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you again for allowing me to take the time to deal with some family issues. But now i'm back we're going to get this show running at a regular level and i'm excited to have on some amazing guests for you in the coming weeks and you can once again reach me at james.baldwin at gmail.com with your questions or comments and i will talk to you next week
1: i would like to add someone to our group here uh Professor Paul Weiss, the Sterling Professor of Philosophy at Yale. Were you able to listen to the show backstage? I heard a good deal of it, but then I was behind the Western Gate. Yes. So I heard only some of it. Did you hear anything that you disagreed with? Or I disagreed with a great deal of it. And of course, there's a good deal I agree with. But I think uh, he's overlooking one very important matter, I think. Each one of us, I think, is terribly alone. He lives his own individual life. He has all kinds of obstacles in the way of religion or color or size or shape or lack of ability, and the problem is to become a man. Well, what I was discussing was not that problem, really. I was discussing the difficulties, the obstacles, the the very real danger of death thrown up by the society when a Negro, when a black man attempts to become a man. All this emphasis upon black man and white does emphasize something which is here, but it emphasizes or perhaps exaggerates it, and therefore makes us for, uh, put people together in groups which they ought not to be in. I have more in common with a black scholar than I have with a white man who is against scholarship. And you have more in common with a white author than you have with someone who's against all literature. So why must we always concentrate on color or religion or this? There are other ways of connecting men. I'll tell you this. When I left this country in 1948, I left this country for one reason only, one reason. I didn't care where I went. I might have gone to Hong Kong. I might have gone to Timbuktu. I ended up in Paris on the streets of Paris. With $40 in my pocket on the theory that nothing worse could happen to me there than it already happened to me here. You talk about making it as a writer by yourself you had to be able then to turn up all the intent of which you live because once you turn your back on this society you may die you may die and it's very hard to sit a typewriter and concentrate on that if you're afraid of the world around you the years i lived in paris did one thing for me they released me from that particular social terror which was not the paranoia of my own mind but a real social danger visible in the face of every cop every boss everybody I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know that white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That's what's a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks that give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you surely exist in america which i have never idealism. seen